Good morning. If you are guests with us this morning, welcome. It's glad to have you on a warm, humid summer day. If you would, take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Our passage this morning is Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. So if you would, join me there. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Lord, we come once again and ask that you would guard us from misunderstanding, that you would guard us from error that you would remind us of our own limitations as creatures as we come to these verses. Open our hearts and our understanding, though, to receive what you have revealed, what you have declared about yourself here. In your name we ask this. Amen. I had a seminary professor who used to repeatedly say, always let the Bible say everything the Bible says, and never make the Bible say anything it doesn't. When we come to Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, let me just say this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible, to let the Bible say everything it says and to not make it say anything it doesn't. In this passage, Paul addresses a question. And that question is actually a challenge, a challenge that results from his words back in verses 7 through 13. In those verses, which we looked at last time, Paul shows how God's word has not failed. Despite Israel's rejection of their Messiah, despite their rejection of the salvation that he brings and that was promised to them, God's word has not failed Because of God's promise, which prevails through God's election. God's work of electing is proven by his choice, first of all, of Isaac over Ishmael. And we looked at the story of Abraham, how Abraham had Ishmael. And Ishmael was of the line of Abraham, but he was not promised He was not from Sarah, whom God had specifically promised, I will give you a son, your own son. That would be Isaac. And even though Ishmael is the oldest born, God reverses that, and the promise prevails. The promise takes preeminence. The second example that Paul gives is 
God's choice of Jacob, but rejection of Esau, even though Esau, also born of Isaac from Abraham, is not only a brother and an heir, but a twin brother of Jacob and is born first, God reverses it in his sovereignty and names Jacob as the line of promise. He chooses Jacob. And the text is very clear that God does this because of nothing having to do with the worthiness of either Jacob or Esau. It is completely and entirely by God's sovereign freedom, his choice. He ends in verse 13 then with, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. What shall we say then, verse 14? Is there injustice on God's part? So here's the challenge Paul answers. If this is how God operates, if salvation is explained by election, then how can God be just? Or how can God be righteous? This word injustice in verse 14 is the word unrighteousness. Is there unrighteousness with God? So for God to be unjust would be for him to be unfaithful to his own righteous person and his own character by being arbitrary, by being partial. Paul tackled a similar challenge back in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? Or unjust, same word. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means, for then how could God judge the world? The answer the Bible gives us to this question, this challenge in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The answer the Bible gives to that question is that God is just and blameless. He is just and blameless. That is to say that God is above reproach in his choosing. So this morning, I want to give you three reasons here that God is just and blameless. I think Paul opens up for us three arguments, proofs, if you will, for why God is just. He is righteous and he is blameless. He is above reproach, above accusation. First of all, God is just and blameless Because God is free. God is free in his sovereignty. God is free in his sovereignty, verses 15 through 18. You can see that there is a rhythm here to what Paul says. For he says to Moses, verse 15, verse 16, so then. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, verse 17, verse 18, so then. But the two examples actually make two different points. And the second one builds on the first one. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. These are part of the Lord's reply to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, when Moses has requested to see God's glory. You may remember this story. Moses says, please show me your glory. And the Lord grants Moses his request, and he says, I'll show you my glory, but I'm going to hide you. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to put my hand over you as I pass by, and you will see my back as I go by, because no one can see my face and live. So to preserve Moses' life, to keep him from being consumed, he does exactly that. The Lord's words are a declaration of his sovereign freedom to bestow mercy as he wills on whomever he chooses. Listen, this is a fundamental truth about the person of God. And it is similar to the truth that God reveals to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses first encounters God. How does he encounter God? When he is called, burning bush, holy ground, take off your shoes. You're going to go to my people, and you're going to lead them out of the land. 
of Egypt, out of slavery. And Moses says, says a bunch of things, but one of the things he says is he says, how are they going to know? Who should I tell them has sent me? And God says, I am who I am. There is nothing to compare me to. There is no other being in my category. I am who I am. And that becomes his name, his sacred name to the people of Israel, Yahweh. I am. The application then of this truth, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, is in verse 16. So then it depends, what depends? Receiving mercy. Finding mercy from God. Receiving mercy from God depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That is, God who is the source of mercy and the one who bestows mercy. So in other words, there are no constraints on God. None. There are no inducements. There are no limitations. He is free to show mercy because he is God. Now, Paul has already been very clear in Romans, and so we already know that we cannot be justified before God. We cannot be made right in God's sight by our own will, by our own exertions, our own works. We cannot be justified before God by works. We can't achieve it. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. Our ingenuity can't gain it for us. But only how? By faith, right? We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. We can only be made right with God when we trust in Christ and his promise to us. Forgiveness, cleansing, justification before God. But here Paul is saying something else. Here Paul is declaring that for you or me, for us to believe, God must first have mercy on us. God's freedom to show mercy does not depend even on your faith. This mercy is not a response to whether or not you believe the gospel. That completely undoes and makes nonsensical anything that Paul says here. It does not depend on our faith. That would be human will. And verses 17 through 18 here, like I said, this example builds on the first one, and it shows this to be the case. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, these words are part of the message the Lord commands Moses to declare to Pharaoh when he confronts him in Exodus 9, verse 16. This is one of those times where God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and say to him, let my people go. He does that several times. All of the wealth, all of the might of Pharaoh's throne, and all of the wealth and the might of the Egyptian empire under Pharaoh's rule, God himself has raised up. I have raised you up. Why? That I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God's own fame and God's own glory is the purpose. And I have made the point before, I believe even last week, that this is the rightest and the only thing for God to do. God's integrity as God must put himself at the center of all being, of all consideration. To show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And how would God do that? 
judgment. The ten plagues. The ten plagues ending with the slaying of every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Animals, children, everything. Except whom? The Israelites who by faith slaughtered a lamb and spread its blood on the doorposts of their homes. The Passover lamb caused the angel of death to pass over their homes and not take the life of their firstborn. And God's purpose worked. All of the nations heard about Egypt and its destruction, and it never recovered as an empire. All of the nations heard and knew that this people Israel belonged to a mighty God. And when Israel eventually gets to the borders of the promised land, the people in the land of Canaan, whom God had promised to Abraham centuries before, and had actually moved Abraham to live in as a kind of a deposit, showing, demonstrating, this is going to be my people's land who are going to come out of Abraham... When the peoples in Canaan heard that the Israelites are lined up on their eastern borders, they tremble because that's the people who destroyed, whose God destroyed Egypt. And so then, verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So with this example of Moses, Paul shows that God has the freedom, sovereign freedom to show mercy. Jacob, I have loved. And with the example of Pharaoh, Paul shows that God has absolute sovereign freedom to harden. Esau, I have hated. In his sovereign freedom, then, God shows mercy and he hardens. To be hardened means to be rendered incapable of receiving truth and responding to that truth with faith. Now, this is where it gets difficult for us, right? This is where we stay up till three in the morning discussing how this could be true and how it's reconciled with all of the other passages in the Bible that we know. This is where we start struggling. Wait a second. What do you mean God hardens people? I thought God loved the world. That doesn't sound fair. What about our part? What about faith? But God's word here doesn't offer to resolve any of these questions. (laughs) As one author put it well, Paul is content to hold the truths of God's absolute sovereignty in both election and in hardening and of full human responsibility without reconciling them. We would do well to emulate his approach. Because you see, behind the question, think about this, follow me. Behind the question, is there injustice on God's part, there is an assumption being made, a wrong assumption. To ask the question itself assumes that there is a standard of right and wrong, of justice and injustice that exists outside of God. A standard of right and wrong by which God must be measured. The problem is that there is no standard of right and wrong outside of God. If there was, we would would be left with a, a, a complete impossibility because someone would have to determine what that standard was. Where would it have come from? This is the problem with the human declaration that there is no God and there is no morality. And yet we all get offended. We all can point to things and say, that is immoral. That is wrong. 
Where does that standard come from? There is no standard outside of God of right and wrong. Right and wrong begin and end with him. He is his own standard. You say, well, that's circular. Yes. All ultimate truth is circular. It has to be or it's not ultimate truth. And this wrong assumption underlies the following objection in verse 19, where we see that God is just and blameless because God is not accountable to his creatures. God is not accountable to his creatures. Verses 19 through 23. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So here's the objection. If I'm hardened because God has hardened me and I can't override him because he's God, I don't have the power to resist his will, how can he still hold me responsible for it? And how can that be justice? That God knew what some of you were thinking. How can that be just? That sounds like a fair question. And Paul could have answered it in a number of ways. He could have answered this question, well, if God hardens a person, it's because they didn't have enough faith. They didn't exercise faith first. This would be the opportunity for Paul to explain that you must believe first, then God would show you mercy. And that the fault is yours. Wouldn't that be right? Wouldn't we say that it's my sin, it's my, I'm culpable? Paul doesn't even point to your culpability or my culpability. He could have said God only hardens those who first reject him. Or God hardens but only when we harden ourselves first. After all, doesn't Exodus tell us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart? It does. It's a street-level view. It's a street-level perspective. Behind the curtain of God's sovereignty, it is God who has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Paul could have very easily said right here, God hardens, but only when we harden ourselves first, like Pharaoh did. Or he could have said, offered some logical solution to reconcile this tension between God's election and our wills. He could have offered some exceptions, some caveats, some explanations, but he doesn't. Instead, he becomes even more unyielding about God's sovereignty, and he says it in more adamant terms. We might say Paul digs in his heels. He will not allow any qualifications Paul denounces the objection itself as arrogant and presumptuous, not as objective and curious. The question itself, the objection, then how, is God, how can God be just? How can he hold me responsible if he's the one hardening my heart? Verse 20, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? This is a rebuke. It's a rebuke that reminds me of something my parents occasionally said to me when I was disrespectful or defiant. Who do you think you are? Some of you have said that to your kids. And some of you sitting in here, kids, youth, have heard that from your parents and someday say it to your children as well. Who do you think you are? For Paul to answer, listen, Paul could have said, again, he could have answered this in any number of ways. But for Paul to answer any other way places God under man's questioning. It is take the judge off of his judge's bench and reverse the roles 
and say that God must now answer to you or to me, who's now sitting on the judgment bench, to determine whether or not God's actions really square up with the standard we think God is held accountable to. Paul will not allow it. The Bible does not allow it. God will not allow it. Period. So anytime we think that we are questioning God and putting him on trial, how often do we see that as the titles of books or magazine articles or newspaper articles, periodicals, God on trial, the Bible on trial, is a delusion. God is never sitting on trial before you or me or anybody. Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? And when he addresses us as, oh man, he is reminding us of the gulf between being a person and being God, between the creature and the creator. And it's this relationship, creator, creature, that forms the basis for what he says next. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now this questioning why have you made me like this, is not an example of the kind of cry or the question from a heart that is trying to understand God's ways, that's trying to grapple with a difficulty. This is not a cry of distress. This, again, is a challenge. This is an accusation. This is your fault, O God, not mine. That's what is in this question. Why have you made me like this? But, verse 21, right? Has the potter no right over the clay? God isn't, God isn't obligated to the creature any more than the person spinning the clay on the potter's wheel is answerable to the pot. Gets to say, I'd like to be a little more round toward the top. Or I'd like to be used for this. To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Oh, same lump. This is important. Because if they've been two different lumps of clay, you could say, well, one lump of clay was obviously more cooperative. There's a difference between these two lumps of clay. The material itself is different. That goes back to human will. Human exertion. Again, Paul's very careful. The same lump, the same quality of materials. It is purely the decision of the potter to make from the one lump of clay vessels, one vessel for honorable use, another vessel for dishonorable use. From the same lump of clay, the potter forms a bowl from which to eat, and from the other creates a bedpan. It's up to the potter. Honorable and dishonorable here are really just other ways of saying glory and wrath. Glory and wrath. Verse 22 makes this clear. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power. Sound familiar? Same phrase God uses in speaking to Pharaoh. To make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God will always receive his glory. No one takes glory from God, even the rebel, even the person who rejects him, never robs God of glory because God receives glory in judgment and wrath 
on that rebellion. And here the purpose is to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So we have vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction. And then there are vessels of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Verse 22 says, what if? What if God did this? And therefore, this is actually hypothetical, isn't it? Sean, this is just hypothetical. God, it, Paul's saying God could do this if he wanted to because he's sovereign. But first of all, you've got to understand this is a rhetorical device. This is a way of framing argumentation. Paul is not laying out a hypothetical condition. Secondly, and even more importantly, he has just given a concrete example showing that this is what God is doing with Moses and Pharaoh. It's exactly what God did with Pharaoh. He said, that wasn't very fair to Pharaoh. I, can't, I don't have an answer either than Paul's. Who are you to talk back to God about what's fair or not fair? I stand in the same place. How are we supposed to resolve this? The Bible says that God is loving and just. And though Paul in Romans 9 shows no concern to qualify at all God's sovereignty with our decisions or how our will fits in with it and those kinds of things, we do know that the Bible teaches that we exercise will, that we believe, that we can reject the gospel, that we can hear the gospel preached, we can hear Christ exalted, and we can reject it all. And Paul, even in the next chapter, in chapter 10, will begin to unfold and expose Israel's failure and culpability. That Israel was guilty. That they did not believe. And so, again, God is blameless. Israel sinned. Israel rejected the truth. Israel became proud and blind in their pride. But here, Paul doesn't give any of those qualifications. The Bible never answers the puzzle for us. It just doesn't. This is one of those truths that we just have to wait to know someday. Our salvation, when the Bible talks about us being saved, it is always because of God's grace. It is always by his election. It is never because of anything we do, anything we've earned, anything we've achieved. And our judgment, humanity's suffering of God's wrath, our facing of God's judgment and condemnation is always a consequence of our sin, our culpability, our rebellion. The Bible says both things. There is just this tension. And I would say this, that it is tension that holds up a suspension bridge. And that it is a necessary tension in Scripture. Regardless of how uncomfortable we are with it. Okay. We'll just have to wait. But because the Bible says these things, our salvation is always by His grace. Always a gift. And our, our facing God's judgment is always because of our sin. I think we can say this. Because of man's sin and rebellion, no person can boast or complain. I don't get to boast about my worthiness or something attractive about me because... God saved me. And I will never get to complain before the judge that he's unfair and, re and rejected me 
My sin, my guilt is what would condemn me. Again, New Testament scholar Douglas Moo puts it this way, God's mercy is given to those who do not deserve it. His hardening affects those who have already, by their sin, deserved condemnation. That's right. We have to live with the tension. So God is just and blameless because he is not accountable to his creatures. We don't call God to account. Even if we think we do, we don't. Thirdly, God has only acted faithfully to his own purposes. God is just and blameless because God has only acted faithfully to his own purposes. Verses 24 through 29. Now, verse 24 looks like a continuation of verse 23, but it's really the beginning of a new sentence. He has called us, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul is now shifting his focus to an example of how God has actually acted faithfully according to his own purposes and therefore is just and blameless and how he has acted toward Israel and what he's doing. Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. And here... He points to the inclusion of Gentiles, those outside of Israel, those outside of the covenant. How come those who got the covenant are hardened? And those who are outside the covenant and never had that basis of a relationship are now received. Well, he points to Hosea, the prophet Hosea, to demonstrate God's purpose all along was to call Gentiles. Indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I'll call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. That's a title that had been applied to the people of Israel. So this is the inclusion of outsiders. He looks then to Isaiah, and by the way, he'll develop this more about the Gentiles as he goes here. But in the next chapters, but he looks to Isaiah then to show that God has purposed also to call Israelites. But not all Israelites. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. And that ought to call you back to Genesis chapters 12 and 15, where God promises your descendants will be like the stars in the heavens, and like the sands of the sea. Innumerable. But even though they are, Isaiah says, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And what he's saying there is this he's making a play on the word offspring. We already saw back earlier in chapter 9, Paul already made the point that not everyone who are offspring of Abraham are truly Abraham's offspring. With this usage of offspring, he's saying that without the Lord of hosts having left us offspring, natural, national offspring, we would have been wiped out like any other people group already. But within this is also a promise That unless within the nation of Israel, God had left in his free sovereignty, left us offspring, those who would believe and be saved, all of Israel would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, judged, the victims of wrath. God has done all of that. There is a remnant God will save Israel and fulfill all his promises by saving a remnant. This is also a truth that he will explain over the next two chapters. But with this statement then, he has called us, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, and pointing back to the prophets. God had said this. God had said already what he was going to do. 
Paul is bringing his argument full circle. He's bringing it back around to chapter 9, verse 1, has, and through 5, and then verse 5 and 6. How, has the word of God failed? Israel bringing great anguish. I wish they would be saved, even to the point of being cut off from Christ myself. But what, can we say that the word of God has failed? No. Watch. In the same way, God overturned human conventions. All human expectations for Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau, so God astounds everyone by saving people excluded from his covenant with Israel and shutting Israel out, at least for a time. Do you see? Do you see what, how Paul is connecting the including of Gentiles as the same as his free, sovereign choice to show mercy on whom he will show mercy and he will harden whom he will harden. In other words, and what Paul is going to show, is that he has hardened Israel for the purpose of saving Gentiles as he hardened Pharaoh for the purpose of delivering the nation of Israel out of Egypt. But God will make good on all of his promises. Again, that's what Paul's going to unfold in chapters 10 and 11. But as God's people, how are we to respond to this? Or I should say maybe, how are the scriptures calling us to respond? What's the call to us as God's people here? Humility. Humility. How can you measure your humility? Or let me put it another way. How can you answer the question, is my heart really humble before God as I come to Romans chapter 9? Let me, let me suggest some ways that you can measure that, that you can answer that question. Is my heart really humble? Okay. Number one, humility does not take salvation for granted. Humility does not take salvation for granted. Someone who is saved does not see themselves as having a superior status. You can't. You can't read Romans chapter 9 and think there was something better about this lump of clay. Especially when I look in the mirror and I see basically a lump of clay. Right? There's nothing superior about this lump of clay. There's nothing, there's nothing I earned any more than Jacob or Esau did in the womb. I can't take any credit for anything. Humility does not take salvation for granted. Humility is not calloused toward unbelievers. It doesn't say, well, I'm part of the elect. I guess you're not. <laughs> Sorry. I don't believe in luck. Romans chapters 9 through 11 are one of the reasons I don't believe in luck or chance. Even if we experience events in life like chance, rolling dice, shuffling cards and dealing them, whatever it might be, I don't believe in luck. But it is better and closer to the truth to see your salvation as luck than it is a reward. I'd rather you walk out of here saying, man, I'm lucky. I know God's sovereign is nothing such as chance, but I'm just lucky. I'd rather hear that than... There's, there was something. This was a reward. I deserve this. I'm moral enough. If you want to see an example, and I'm not going to turn there this morning, but if you want to see an example, look at John chapter 6 sometime. When Jesus is arguing with the, the religious leaders of his day, and their argument and their appeal is always election. We're of Abraham. We're Abraham's children. We're of Abraham. And Jesus eventually says, you're of your father the devil, and if God wants praise, he can, he can get praise from the rocks, from the stones. God doesn't need you. That's an example of taking salvation for granted. 
And in fact, Israel's history shows that is what the nation did in terms of their covenant. They took salvation for granted. Humility doesn't take salvation for granted. Secondly, humility receives the tension with joy. It receives the tension with joy. Humility will not sacrifice either truth. God is sovereign and elects, and I'm culpable and must believe and answer the gospel with faith, respond with faith. Humility accepts both of those. It never attempts to alleviate the tension between the two by saying, you know what? That word foreknowledge can't mean foreknowledge. And that's, that can't be true because then God would be unjust. And at the same time, it never says, well, it really has nothing to do with you believing or, or a choice or becoming convicted. You don't really have a say in the matter. You basically are slated for mercy and glory or wrath and destruction, period. Humility lets the Bible say everything it says and doesn't make it say anything it doesn't say. Humility doesn't indict God because he hasn't given you all of the answers to this tension. Humility doesn't do that. Thirdly, humility preaches Christ, proclaims Christ without consideration of whether the hearer is elect or not. Humility proclaims Christ without consideration of whether the hearer is elect or not, because you can't know. You don't need to know. You just preach Christ. You just live Christ. You proclaim Christ. You let God in his sovereignty behind the curtain do what God is doing. Humility will not assume upon itself yeah, that person must not be elect. That person doesn't deserve the gospel. That person will never respond. We think that often, don't we? This is where the doctrine of election keeps you faithful and guards you from error because God doesn't depend upon that person <laughs> or their hardness or the softness of their heart. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will harden whom he will harden. You don't have any decision in the thing, in the process. You don't have a say. You have a mission. Proclaim Christ. Fourthly, humility worships first and wrestles after. Humility worships first and wrestles after. Humility will hold as its highest treasure God's glory and therefore his blamelessness. You cannot worship God while holding him at fault and subject to your judgment or changing his words to match what you think makes more sense. Humility worships first. It wrestles afterward. We worship him first, then we wrestle with what he's revealed. Fifthly, lastly, humility trust, trusts God's right judgments. Ultimately, this is the bottom line. Humility trusts God's right judgments. God is righteous. Humility trusts God. Humility trusts that our justice and our sense of Fairness is faulty. It's imperfect. To be able to say that God is unjust or God is not consistent would require us to be able to rule the universe with perfection. This is God's argument to Job in the last chapters of Job. This is why if you ever read the last half of Job, it's all this about nature, eagles up in the up in the crags of the rocks having their nests and their babies and the wild goats in the mountains having their babies in the deeps of the ocean and the ostrich and you can't explain all these things 
God is forcing Job to say, you don't know any of these things. Could you keep the universe in order? Can you tame Leviathan? Can you bring forth snow and rain and the fields and give, feed the birds and all the flocks of the earth? And can you determine all that? God is vindicating his own righteousness to Job. And Job's response is the right one. And it is the humility that I'm talking about. I close my mouth in dust and ashes. I shut my mouth and I don't say anything. Humility trusts God's right judgments. In the end, we say, I don't know. It's great to feel so small, isn't it? I, I don't know. I can't explain it. I don't have the answer. I can't resolve all the tension. But I do know this. What God has said is true. And God is right in his judgments. And even if I don't understand it, I will hold to that till the end. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much to learn. The depths of the truths here are beyond us even to explore in all of our lifetimes, let alone one. And yet, Lord, you are clear. There is no mistaking what you have said. And Lord, we trust you ultimately. You've saved us and we relinquish any claim to have had any right or any achievement or even our own faith that you responded to our faith. Lord, you are God and you alone are God and you are God alone. And you have called us forth to worship you. Lord, these are worthy things to discuss and wrestle with. But first and foremost this morning, we simply bow and we worship. And we thank you that you are a God who is not like us. That you infinitely transcend us in your power and your wisdom and in your purposes. And we, and we bask, we rejoice in your love for us and the mercy that you have shown us and pray that in your great sovereignty you would show mercy to others as we proclaim you. In your name we ask this.